0: Doing all right? All right. All right. First service response. That's okay. It's a little quieter. You know, when you get to when you get to preach two services, you see the real differences, the dynamic contrast between the first service crowd and the second service crowd. So I'm not going to make any judgments. I'm just going to say there's a difference. That's all. You guys are awesome. Okay. More awake today than normal. Okay. All right. Well. The focus for this part of the year um, with our preaching calendar and our preaching focus is extending the kingdom of God. And for most of these few months as we're thinking about this theme, it's going to be looking at what is um, our role, what's our understanding of what it looks like to reach out in our local community, in Kalamazoo, Southwest Michigan, in the U.S. And that's really important. And we're certainly not going to take away from that and the theme as a whole um, over these few months. But today we're going to take a slightly different direction, and we're going to look at the global church. Um, Because we, um, as brothers and sisters in Christ, are not isolated from the rest of the world. And there is an awful lot that's happening in the church around the world that is tremendously exciting, and we just don't really ever hear about it. And so this morning I want to share some information with you. It's, It's mostly going to be information today. Um, but I think it's going to be mostly encouraging for you to hear this. There is a challenge that comes with it as well, and we'll, we'll get to that part. But I think overall, I think it's going to be something that really encourages you that um, God is doing some amazing things in the world today. He really is. Uh, about a hundred, not about a hundred years ago, the years 1910. There's a group of a large group of people that gather in uh, the city of Edinburgh in Scotland for what has become a very very uh, well-known global missions conference and as they sat in in Edinburgh in Scotland in the year 1910 they would those mission pastors and scholars and experts on global Christianity could not in their wildest dreams have imagined everything that would happen in the next 100 years of church history It would have been impossible for them to imagine everything that God did in the next 100 years of church history. There was no way for them to predict what God was going to do by his spirit in the next 100 years of church history. And let me tell you, it's pretty exciting. And we're going to look at what did happen from the time that they met. It's been really amazing to see what God has done. Now, you might say, is it really important to look at what's happening around the world when there's so much that's that's, uh, important here to look at? And I just want to really quickly just look at a few passages of Scripture. to just And this is a good reminder for all of us, but God is a God who has always been concerned with every nation. God has never simply said, I'm going to choose one nation and that's it. Whether that nation is Israel, or whether you think that nation might even be the U.S., but God has never just blessed one nation and said, that's good enough. God has always been a God who has been concerned with every single nation. Let's just look at a couple of scriptures. This is a really, really important scripture in the overall um, story of the Bible. God comes to Abraham in Genesis 12 in this f- famous passage, and he says, Go from your country, your people, your father's high to a land I will show you. I will, um, I will uh, make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This promise was so powerful and fundamental to the story of the Bible that Paul in Romans said this was the gospel. This was the God announced the gospel to Abraham right here that. The blessing of God is going to extend to all nations. A couple of other passages from the Old Testament, uh, Deuteronomy 4, right in the law. Um, God is talking to the Israelites and talking about the laws and saying, "Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and uh, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people.'" There's this idea in the Old Testament that God is working with Israel in particular, but it's not just for Israel's sake, it's for the sake of the whole world. And whatever happens between Israel and her God is really important, not just for the Israelites, it's really important as a witness to every other nation. And so you can imagine that God and Israel are interacting together. And that God is establishing his law with Israel as a pattern of what it is to live as God's people. And it's happening surrounded by the witness of all these other nations who are looking at the relationship between God and Israel and essentially saying, is that the real deal? Is that God of Israel really the God of every nation? And there was something very particular about um, Israel's relationship with God that was to extend as a witness or to be a light to all nations. In Psalm 113, verse 4, The Lord is exalted over all the nations, His glory above the heavens. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. A prophetic declaration of what will happen, that all nations will come to know the Lord. And then just a couple of New Testament references. Matthew 28. uh, This is right as Christ is ascending into heaven. And this is maybe the most well-known kind of mission-related text where Jesus tells his disciples to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is often talked about in relation to mission. And then looking ahead into Revelation 7, that that vision that um, John has as he's shown a picture of heaven and of the end things. And we see that after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that nobody could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This is the vision that propels mission, that one day there will be people who are before the presence of God as his people from every single nation, from every tribe, from every language, from every people group. And this is the vision that um, we see clearly throughout Scripture, that God is a God who is concerned about all nations and all people. I want to ask you a question this morning. So just kind of think about this briefly. If you were to imagine a Christian in the world today, who would you imagine? Not me. (laughs) If you were to picture someone, if somebody came from another planet and said, what's what's a Christian? What do they look like? What would you picture? Well, a lot of people might picture somebody like this. This is uh, Billy Graham, a famous evangelist. Many, many, many millions of people have seen Billy Graham get up and preach. So just purely word association with being a Christian, people might think of somebody like Billy Graham. For many people in the world today, it would be this person, uh, Pope Francis. A lot of people in the world today would associate being a Christian with Pope Francis. And that is really a legitimate, you know, these are two people that you might look to. And just based on their global reach, and just based on how many people that they have ministered to, this might be a legitimate way to think about a Christian in the world today. But I would say, this is a legitimate way to think about the world a hundred years ago. If you said a hundred years ago, what does a Christian look like? Probably would have looked like this. A white person, a male somebody who's doing pretty well in life. That was a Christian about 100 years ago. Christian today looks more like this. And not only do they look like this, they probably live somewhere like this. So this is a favela or slum in Rio. And the typical Christian today, like if you took the total Christian population, all the Christians in the world, and you just picked one at random, would look like this, most likely. If you ask them where they live, they'd say, I live somewhere like this. So typical Christians say it's young, they're living in poverty, most likely female, and they're most likely from Africa or Latin America. So 100 years ago, 1910, you would have never predicted that that would be a typical Christian. Well, why, why was that? We'll get to that in just a second. Do you remember the year 1980? You don't have to raise your hand if you remember the year 1980. Some of us don't. That's all right. In the year 1980, there was a fundamental shift that happened in global Christianity. Two really, really major things happened in 1980. And you probably don't know what they are. And that's okay. That's why you come to church. But these things happened that just completely have changed the shape of global Christianity. Here they are. In 1980, for the first time in many, many centuries, there were more non-white Christians in the world than white Christians. Now, when the church first started, of course, there were more non-white Christians than white, but quickly that changed. And so for a long, 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 long time in church history, to be Christian is to be white. And yet, in 1980, it tipped back, where for the first time in a long time, more Christians were non white than were white. And the second is that the largest Protestant group became Pentecostals. That just, that just happened. It had been coming for a long time, and by 1980 it happened. Now, when you look at global numbers of Christians, when you, the largest is Roman Catholic. I mean, they just are the largest, just in terms of sheer head count. So a lot of what we're talking about is Protestant. Pentecostals became the largest Protestant group in 1980. This is another way to look at it. So, this first year, 1800, it's going back a couple of hundred years ago. If you wanted to find a Christian, where did you go? Europe and North America. 99% of Christians lived in Europe and North America. And only 1% of Christians lived in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. So remember, we're talking about 100 years ago. So what happened in the 1800s? Was there a great change? Well, not really. 90% of Christians lived in Europe and North America. 10% lived in Latin America, in Africa, and in Asia. 1979, it's 50-50. Do you remember that year 1980 we talked about? 1980 was the year where it tipped over 49%, 51 So that's pretty cool. What's happened since then? Do you feel like America is in the driving seat as a Christian nation in the world? We're often tempted to think, like, we have all the resources, we have all the knowledge, we have it all together. We tell the world what to do when it comes to how to live as a Christian. Uh, You know, that 26 might be high. To be honest, some people say it's as low as 15% of Christians today live in North America and Europe. It's not just the numbers of Christians and where they live. It's the type of Christian as well, by denomination. In 1900, there's lots of Baptists. There's lots of Anglicans in the world. There's no Pentecostals. Remember Azusa Street? That hasn't happened in 1900. There's nobody that would identify as Pentecostal. Say, Pentecostal, what's that? 1980, 80 years later, there's over 50 million Baptists in the world, over 50 million Anglicans, and there's over 50 million Pentecostals. Wow, those Pentecostals have really caught up. By the year 2000, there's 110 million Baptists, there's 76 million Anglicans, over 400 million Pentecostal Christians in the world. And today, they estimate... Can't really keep track because it's happening so quickly. They estimate that there's over 500 million Pentecostals in the world. They're adding over 20 million believers to Pentecostal church per year. Over 55,000 a day. So in 1910, there was no way to predict that this would happen. As Jesus Street had happened just a handful of years before, nobody would have ever believed that Pentecostal Christianity would have taken off like this. Nobody would have predicted it. And nobody would have predicted the massive shift that happened where Christianity went from being something that we saw in North America and Europe to something that we see in the rest of the world. Here's another chart that shows kind of the growth rate of different religions. And the the bar at the bottom is the overall, just the population growth of the world. And one thing I want to show you in particular is that the very top, you can see how fast charismatic Pentecostal evangelical churches are growing, that they're growing so much faster around the world than um, any other religion and way faster than just the overall birth rate. So something is happening in a dramatic way around the world where what they call renewal Christianity, and that's the type of church that we are, we're in this renewal stream of Christianity, where something is happening, where renewal stream of Christianity, that renewal form of Christianity, is growing like crazy around the world. Now you can see that... Um, You can see that there are different religions that are are still growing. You see that um, Islam is growing. It's growing faster than Christianity if you take all Christian church together. But if you take away some of those older mainline denominations, if you take out the Catholic church, and you just look at evangelical, Pentecostal, charismatic growth, that is the fastest religious growth that's happening in the world today. So these are some, some numbers. And I know not everyone is into numbers. I wanted to share a couple of kind of snapshots or maybe insights that kind of help um, put more detail to this. So today is Sunday. We know this, right? Today is Sunday, but it's possible that today is Sunday, there were more Christians that went to church in China than in all of Europe. Which is pretty amazing, considering in 1970, there were no legally functioning churches in China. And today, they estimate that there's over 100 million Christians in China. Traditional denominations that were considered sending denominations, so think about some of the older denominations. There's now more Christians in the countries that received missionaries than there are in those countries that sent Christians to start with. For example, um, the Anglican Church in the UK went to a lot of places in Africa, uh, a lot of African nations, and there are now more Anglicans that attend church in Nigeria, South Africa, and Kenya than in places like the UK, Canada, and the US. Uh, The largest Anglican congregation by far is in Nigeria. There are way more more, uh, Anglicans in Nigeria than in the UK. A Presbyterian church started in Scotland. There's now more Presbyterians who worship every Sunday in Ghana and West Africa than there are in Scotland. Uh, there's way more Pentecostal Christians in Brazil than there are here in the U.S. Uh, in the U.K., there are actually 15,000 missionaries who serve full-time as missionaries to the U.K. culture. And they're mostly from um, Asian countries and African countries. The largest uh, congregation that meets in Europe, Protestant congregation in Europe, um, is in the Ukraine in Kiev, and it's pastored by a Pentecostal um, guy from Nigeria. And so overall, we have this massive shift that's happened uh, in the global church. And... Uh, some people would argue that the most important change in Christian faith in the last century has been the demographic shift away from the traditional centers of Europe and North America. And it's evident now that Christianity can no longer be regarded as a Western religion. It's a global religion of which the Western church is just a small fraction. So in 1910, when all of those people were sitting in Edinburgh, they they wanted this to happen, Right? They were concerned with the spread of the gospel to the nations. They wanted to see the church grow and to expand throughout the world. They just would have never pictured it happening the way it did. It used to be that missionaries went from places like here to different countries around the world. That they went from Western Europe to different places around the world. And we had this mentality of we are the ones who send, and we go. And it was a one-way street. And missionaries went from the, if you look, think of a map of the world, missionaries went from the northwest, and they went everywhere throughout the world. Well, today, that is completely changed. Missionaries go from everywhere to everywhere. There are missionaries from Korea who are going all over the world. There are missionaries from Brazil going all over the world. And so now you have missionaries going from everywhere to everywhere. And that's a really good and exciting development for the global church. Let's look at region by region for just a moment. Sub-Saharan Africa 1900, and the reason that 1900 is a year that they kind of benchmark is because when that conference met in Edinburgh in 1910, they had information that they had at hand about what was the most recent, you know, kind of mission information. So often 1900 is used as a benchmark year. In 1900, less than 10% of the population in Sub-Saharan Africa was Christian, and today over 60% is Christian, and that's about half a billion people. Now, Sub-Saharan Africa is interesting because they are really wrestling through with a legacy of post-colonial mission. So, um, if you know a little bit about history, you know that um, European nations and uh, from the West, they went to Africa. They colonised Africa. If you look at a map of Africa from 100 years ago, it's pretty much split up uh, and divided up among a lot of European countries. Um, A lot of European um, languages are still spoken in Africa as a legacy of colonialism. Well, they didn't just bring things like railroads and education, and uh, things like that, they brought Christianity with them, and they brought it in a very European form. They brought it in a very North American form, and so the sub-Saharan church, even though it's growing um, of its own accord, it's also having to really wrestle through, what does it look like for us to have a truly African theology? What does it look like for us to have a truly African um, sense of worship? What does it look like for us to have a truly African understanding of what the church is? And so that's um, something that they are uh, definitely still wrestling with. um, Sub-Saharan Africa, um, as you probably know, has very, very high rates of disease. Um, The AIDS epidemic is really, um, uh, in Southern Africa, is is a very, very big problem. Um, Crushing levels of poverty, um, corruption in government and um, the migration of the poor to urban areas. And of course, these are generalizations, but we're taking a very, very big picture look this morning. These are some of the big themes that the church has to wrestle with. Um, When people are coming to your church and they um, have AIDS, and there's uh, very little access to healthcare and medicine, how do you deal with that as a church? Uh, When people just have no access to resources or to education, um, when... Your um, kids, you know, here kids might uh, grow up and go to college. There um, kids might grow up and go to the city, and you might never see them. Um, so the migration of the, especially the rural poor to the cities, um, to try to find um, a better life. These are huge kind of social issues that the church is kind of in the middle uh, of wrestling with. And one interesting thing about sub-Saharan Christians is that when they open up the, um, the pages of the Old Testament, they don't have to cast their mind back and think, oh, I wonder what the Old Testament times were like for them. That's, that's like their life. When they open up the Old Testament, they just inherently understand systems of agricultural life and all of these different ways that the Old Testament talks about setting up society, they just understand that naturally. Because that's the life, that's the mindset that they're in. So that leads me to wonder, boy, if we had African theologians and pastors who understand the Old Testament like that, wouldn't it be great to hear from them? I was going to throw that out there. Okay. Asia, just over 100 years ago, 22 million Christians in Asia. That's about 2% of the population. So there's been numerical growth in Asia, over 360 million Christians, but it's still only about 8% of the population. So Asia is this really, really um, interesting example of how the church is growing because even though we've seen numerical growth, It's been very um, concentrated in a few different places. So uh, we referenced China earlier, where there's we think over 100 million um, believers in China, and that's an example of just amazing and rapid church growth. There's no historical precedent. There's nothing that's been seen ever in history that we know of that compares to the history of uh, to the rate of growth of the church in China today. I mean, the church in China is growing so fast. It's not like anything else we've ever seen. Uh, South Korea has has really um, become a very, very Christian country in many ways. A large percentage of the country um, is Christian. Um, the largest church in the world, in South Korea, in Seoul, in the capital city of Seoul, um, has uh, over 830,000 people that attend. Uh, the Philippines also... Um, has is also uh, see, seen a lot of Christians. Um, but there are other countries, and we know of, about Japan, because uh, we have connection there, but less than 1% Christian. And so there's a very, very um, uneven um, way that the church has grown um, in Asia. And Asia is a really, really important continent for us in the 21st century. And the reason is that 55, one of the reasons is that 55% of the world's population Lives in Asia. Um, there's, I, I could have included it not. I think about it, but there's this um, graphic you can do. You can draw a circle that includes China, India, um, Japan, and kind of that whole just kind of that far east. You go as far over as India and make sure to include China. And you draw that circle. There's more people live inside that circle than live outside that circle. So when you talk about population density. India and Southeast Asia is where the most people are in the world, and um, it's a place that we see 8% of the population um, is Christian. Um, seven of the ten largest uh, cities in the world are in Asia, so urban ministry is really, really critical if you're going to reach, um, if you're going to reach Asia. Um, The three largest non-Christian religions in the world are all rooted and have their roots um, in Asian culture, um, Islam, Buddhism, Buddhism, and Hinduism. So Asia is really critical in 21st century mission just because of scale, um, because of historical roots of different religions. And there's a lot of um, social issues as well that we see um, throughout Asia. Um, We see a lot of poverty in in Asia. There's a real disparity between the rich and the poor. Um, There's a lot of um, trafficking both of humans in the sex trade and also drug trafficking. And um, there's a lot of um, trying to figure out what does it look like as these massive cities continue to grow? What does that mean socially um, for a lot of Asian countries? Uh, China would be a good example, the migration of the rural poor uh, to the cities. And these issues really affect the church as they try to um, figure out you know, how to share the gospel among these nations. Uh, Latin America was uh, reached by um, Spanish and Portuguese uh, Catholic missionaries in the 1500s. So Latin America is a little bit different because in many ways they have been familiar with the name of Jesus and have heard the gospel to varying degrees for hundreds of years. Well, uh, one of the big social issues in Latin America is is poverty. And even though um, 75% of the population would consider themselves to be Christian, uh, primarily Roman Catholic, less than 15% actually attend church on a Sunday. And over 80% of the population of Latin America lives in poverty. And the Roman Catholic Church has been present in these cultures for so long that for a lot of people, the Catholic Church is part of the problem and not part of the solution. Because the Catholic Church has become so intertwined with the politics of the region, with the social structures that cause people to stay in poverty. So this has provided an opening, um, especially... um, and the and most recent 50 years for the evangelical church to grow. And you can see that in 1940 there were 1 million um, evangelicals in all of Latin America, and today it's over 90 million. And of those 90 million, 75% are Pentecostal. So that, that is amazing, just that growth. But one of the particular challenges in Latin America is you have um, not only the evangelical church trying to um, grow and influence and um, and stature in society. They're not just bumping up against the secular governments and all of those different institutions, but they're also having to figure out what's their relationship with the Catholic church. And so there's real tension that um, is there that needs to be navigated wisely in terms of how do evangelical church leaders and Catholic church leaders work together so that they don't damage the overall relationship reputation of the church. Um, Latin America, um, there's just so much exciting that's happening there, but there's a real need for um, for trained leaders, education for pastors, for deeper discipleship in Latin America. And there's also, uh, when you talk to people from there, uh, one of the challenges is um, the prosperity gospel. I'm going to talk about that in just a little bit. Um, but that is something that um, church leaders are really having to wrestle with, the influence of a prosperity gospel. Okay, jumping ahead to the Middle East and North Africa. I don't know if you know this, but in the first 600 years of the church, it thrived in North Africa. If you read early church history, so many of the critically important church leaders and church fathers came from North Africa. The Nicene Creed that we read together this morning, Greatly influenced by North African church leaders and theologians. The doctrine of the Trinity came through many, many people's formulation and thinking about theology and scripture in the church. And critical in that chain of people thinking through the doctrine of the Trinity were Athanasius and Augustine. These were North Africans. And in the 7th century, Islam came in and drove the Christian presence from North Africa, and it 's pretty much been in decline. The church presence has been in decline ever since, and so we 're not really used to thinking about Christian presence in north Africa, and yet historically, if you go back to the earliest roots of the church, the church was very, very strong in North Africa today, the um, population in uh, the Middle East and North Africa of Christians is about five percent and fifteen um, percent about one hundred years ago, so we see that it 's in decline and um, there's a, they approximate about 18 million Christians that live kind of dispersed in the Middle East and North Africa, kind of living among um, over 330 uh, Muslims. So it's challenging times for the church, and they don't really expect the church, just looking at kind of the lay of the land, they don't expect the church to grow in the Middle East and North Africa. If you follow the news, you know even recent stories coming out of Iraq, you can see the challenges that face the church in this region. And yet, if you want an example, if you want to see and hear an example of a church that's remained faithful in times of persecution, this would be somewhere to look. If you want to research and look at the Coptic Christian faith in Egypt, you'll find um, stories and you'll find history about some of the most faithful witness of Christians that you'll see in church history. It still remains uh, to this day. So finally, we come to Europe and North America, traditionally the Sanding Nations. And uh, if you went and you said to people in Europe and North America, do you think you're Christian? They estimate about 75% of people would say, yeah, I'm Christian. And yet, um, less than 25% ever ever attend church, let alone attend church regularly. And um, most of the time at New Day and in the church in North America, we're trying to figure out, like, why is this happening? And what's our culture? And what's, what are all the dynamics that are taking place in our culture to make the church be in a place where it seems to be in decline, but there are, are um, there are influences and historical things that have happened in our culture in the last fifty to one hundred years that have basically encouraged us to make our faith private to basically say don't don 't make your Christian faith public like that is not acceptable anymore. We live in a pluralistic society. And you need to respect the opinions and the rights of others. So if you want to believe and be a Christian, that's fine. But just keep that to yourself. Does that sound familiar? And that's where we've gotten to. And today's message is not really focused on thinking about the North American church. Because we are doing that a lot of other times. But it's just to let you know that our experience where the church is in decline, we look around and maybe there's uncertainty in some ways. That is not what's happening globally. But there are so many places in the world where the gospel message is thriving, where people are coming to faith in huge numbers, where the church is being added to daily, as it says in the book of Acts. And that should be an encouragement for us because, um, as Paul says in Romans, the gospel just has so much power to change people's lives. And that has not changed. And that, as the church faithfully witnesses around the world, that people are being drawn to him. And that the church is growing, is growing in number, and is growing in influence. Well, why would this be the case? So mission scholars travel the world, and they try to figure out, and put their, put their finger on, like, why, is, why are these trends happening? And it's really hard because things are changing all the time. But these are four reasons that they kind of have come up with. So first is zeal for the Lord. When you travel to countries, um, especially, say, Latin America, Africa, Asia, where the church is really growing, there is such a passion and a zeal for the Christian faith. And it's often expressed in their church services and their worship. So um, they'll say, well, what's worship like around the world? And they're like, it's noisy and it's long. And boy, those people are passionate about God whenever they worship, right? And it's just this incredible outpouring of passion and zeal for God. Well, that then carries over in their relationship with people they know that they have a zeal for mission where they are not afraid to go out and just share what God is doing in their lives where they're just not afraid to go out and to share what God is doing, to go out and to share the gospel message. They live their lives with an expectancy and a faith that whenever they pray that God is going to hear their prayers and that he is going to answer. And so, um, you know, if if they're a parent and their child gets sick and they are living in rural sub-Saharan Africa and they know they're not going to be able to get to a doctor, they're going, to get, they're going to get people together from their, from their church and they're going to pray. And they're going to pray 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 and fully expect that God is going to heal. And part of what's happening to fuel church growth is that God is doing signs and wonders, that there are miracles that are happening every day, that Jesus is showing up in visions and dreams to people, where people who are ministering in the Middle East are saying, this person came and knocked on my door because Jesus appeared to them in a dream and told them to come to my house. So, I know that our church, we really try to focus on some of these things. But it's not true for all churches. And the more that the church in the West has diminished the role of the supernatural, the role of the spirit, we see that the life is just sucked right out of the church. And yet, globally, they are pressing in to all of these supernatural things. And they live a life of expectancy and faith. And then, finally, they live a life of... That includes sacrificial faith. And that's anything from giving of their time, giving of the money that they might have, um, whether it's giving up comforts. But they fully associate their faith with sacrifice. And that does not come easily to us, right? Our culture says, be comfortable. Be as comfortable and secure as you can be. And then take out an insurance policy to make sure that you stay that way. Right? Okay, this is not a finance message, alright. But this is just how we think, right? And yet, they live in this very real sense of being willing to sacrifice for the gospel. Um, I'll just give you one example. Um, In China, right now, in the the house church, they are um, seeking to raise up 100,000 missionaries who will go to the Middle East. So you'll remember that the Middle East is very unreached. We're not expecting the gospel to grow in the Middle East. If you want to go to the Middle East and uh, live as a Christian, there's a really good chance that you're going to be thrown in jail. So Chinese Christians are saying, well, we're familiar with that. We've been in jail, some of us, for a long time. We know what it is to be tortured for our faith. We know what it is to... uh, to run away from the authorities and try to hide. We know what it is to run underground churches. So we think we're pretty well prepared to go to uh, the Middle East and share the gospel. In fact, we're way more prepared than any of you Western Christians. And so they're looking to raise up 100,000 missionaries that will go to the Middle East and uh, share the gospel. And they fully expect that at least 10% of them will be martyred for their faith. And yet, they're still... They're still raising people to go and share the gospel. So that's just one example of um, sacrificial um, faith. Um, I don't want to give you the impression that you know, in the global church that um, everything is just going right and that there's no issues and no problems. There are ways that we can pray into and help to understand uh, what their situation is like. And these are just four of the main areas. A lot of these churches are young. The growth has been so rapid. Leaders in these churches often are like whoever became a Christian first, right? But they may become a Christian five minutes before the next person. So suddenly they're in a leadership role. Well, um, a lot of these people are still growing in their understanding of the gospel and of maturity and wise leadership and so um, we do need to know that there's you know there is temptation for abuse of authority in churches and denominations and groups. you know imagine if somebody put you in charge of something for the first time when you're really young and suddenly people are looking to you as a respected authority figure you'd at least be tempted to abuse some of that right you I mean just your sinful nature it would be hard to keep all of that in check, right? So, a lot of these pastors and, and church leaders, um, it's important that we know that um, they're careful in exercising um, their church leadership. Um, the church is growing rapidly in certain places in the world, so there's a need to really make disciples and not just converts, where discipleship really starts to become embedded into the local churches, and that um, there's true discipleship structures that are put in place um, for Christians. Um I talked about this a second ago, but prosperity theology, and this is a theology that says um, God is guaranteed to bless you with whatever you want. So that might be a new job, family, wealth. And the more you give, the more likely God is to um, say yes to your request. Okay, so this is complicated because God does love us and bless us, right? And he does provide for us. And yet, it's it's the twist on that good idea, that good doctrine, that good biblical theology, where it says, if you give enough, God is guaranteed to give it to you. And so churches will say, uh, church leaders will get up and say, if you sow a financial seed, you are guaranteed to get a a return tenfold, fiftyfold, a hundredfold. So make sure to bring your offering up to the front. And so there's a lot of churches around the world that that's what they're um, that's what they're talking about in order to see people come into the churches. And yet it's dangerous because we know and we can see in Scripture that God does not work that way. He's not this divine ATM where you put in the right PIN number and you get everything you want. And yet, God does provide and we should... Come. So there's a, you see the tension there? And this is where the wise leadership, the, the training and the understanding of Scripture works together where there is a need for the church in this kind of infancy stage around the world in many places to really understand um, true nature of God as a father and who he is. And then finally, the church um, cannot ignore different social issues that are happening around it. The church is never isolated from its culture. You can go anywhere in the world. The church is never isolated from its culture. And so many of the cultures where the church is growing around the world, you have to think about how do you deal with poverty and disease and injustice and corruption and all of these different issues. And the church is trying to wrestle through all of these things in a way that's faithful to Scripture. And to finish, what's our role? I think one of the biggest things we can do is just continue to learn about what God is doing around the world and this is not to put some huge burden on you but just just to know that god is doing some really phenomenal things around the world it's just important to know that how we see the world in our north american context is not the only way to see god and to understand what he's doing around the world because remember his heart is for the nations you know he spoke it back to to uh, to abram in genesis 12 that all nations will be blessed. And it's good for us to know how that promise is being fulfilled. So we can learn about Christians and what God is doing around the world. We can also learn from them. Right? What is it that we can learn from Christians across the world? They can really teach us a thing or two about how to live as, as good Christians. Obviously, we can pray about these things and pray for the church around the world. There's a great resource um, produced um by Patrick Johnson, um, a British mission scholar called Operation World, and that will take you um, through praying through all the different countries in the world in a year and give you insights on how to pray. Uh, We can consider going, whether that's a short-term trip, whether it's through New Day, a different organization, or maybe even long-term. Maybe God might call some of us to go long-term. You never know. And then finally, giving. Uh, We give to different ministries around the world here at New Day, and um, giving might feel like a small part. But it's still really important to see the extension of God's kingdom around the world. There's a ton more that we can say on this last part. That's a whole different sermon. And so um, I'll just put up, there's some resources there. I'll just leave this slide up if you want to make a note of them. If you're interested, a couple of good books on mission. I got a lot of the material for this morning's message from these two books. And then some different websites that are resources for you as well. All right, let's stand together as we close our service this morning. So join with me in prayer. And we will just take a moment and we'll just pray as we finish and just thank God for what He's doing around the world. So Father God, we do thank You for what You're doing around the world, for the good things that You are doing to extend Your kingdom, to see the church growing in many places around the world, God. We thank You so much for Your faithfulness, God, that You are... That your heart is for the whole world, for every nation. And God, we just pray that you would allow that reality to go just even a little bit deeper in our hearts and our minds, God. That we are excited by what you're doing around the world. And that we, even though it's in a small part, God, that we can be part of what you are doing in the nations. Thank you, God, so much for how um, New Day is involved in mission around the world. God, and we just pray it would continue to grow. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.